Hello, this is Terrence McNally. I and a lot of other folks have seen Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. In its first 10 days of release, it grossed $400 million globally, $174 million in the U.S., while earning Rotten Tomatoes scores of 94 from critics and 91 from audiences, both higher, I might add, than its popular rival Barbie. I assume it has reminded millions of the threat of nuclear weapons. Still, every bit as existential and destructive as climate change, but too seldom in the news or in the forefront of people's consciousness. Here are two relevant half-hour conversations. First, from 2009, with Joe Cirincione, longtime head of the Plowshares Fund and author of, among other books, Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. And in the second half, my 2007 interview with the late Helen Caldicott, co-founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility, a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize, and a leading spokesperson against the use of nuclear power, whether in war or in peace. Hi, I'm Terry McNally. Welcome to Free Forum. Nukes are in the news. March 8, 2009. Headline, will U.S. attack Pakistan to secure nuclear weapons? March 11th, U.S.-Israel disagree on Iran arms threat. April 5th, North Korea's defiant rocket launch. April 6th, after North Korea's launch, Obama focuses on disarmament. April 13th, U.N. Security Council condemns North Korean rocket launch. April 13th, again, Iran says it welcomes nuclear talks with West. April 14th, North Korea to restart nuclear weapons plant. How big a threat is North Korea? Will Iran go nuclear? Will Israel attack Iran? Are nukes safe in Pakistan? Are they safe in the former Soviet Union? Can Obama really move toward nuclear disarmament? The North Korean missile launch was a failure. President Obama, while in Europe, called for an end to nuclear weapons. Newt Gingrich labeled that fantasy, even though Ronald Reagan had asked for the same thing many years ago. What can we expect from the new hardline government in Israel with regards to Iran? And what can we expect from Iran as it moves toward the presidential election in June? And then what about Pakistan and India? It's time to talk with nuclear weapons expert Joe Cirincione. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative, provocative approaches to business, environment, health, science, politics, media, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. Joe Cirincione joined Plowshares Fund as president in March 2008. He previously served as senior vice president for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress and as director for nonproliferation at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's co-author of Universal Compliance, A Strategy for Nuclear Security, author of Deadly Arsenals, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Threats, and his newest, uh, back in 2007, Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. 2005 Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohamed El-Baradei, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, praises Bomb Scare. Quote, at a time of challenges and uncertainties regarding the nuclear nonproliferation and disarmament regime, the book offers a comprehensive review of the history and the theory of nuclear weapons as well as of the policy options before us today in our common endeavor to address the most pressing threats, existing arsenals, the emergence of new nuclear armed states, 
and nuclear terrorism. Welcome, Joseph Cirincione, to KPFK and Free Forum. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas. At what point in your life did you begin to focus on nuclear weapons, and why? <laughs> focus. I think my earliest memory was probably as a kid, and the... Uh the air raid drills that we had. The nuns at St. Rita's <laughs> Grammar School would line us up for drills every, every couple of months. Or reading Failsafe when it was serialized in the, uh, in the Saturday Evening Post. But I didn't, I didn't really get serious about it professionally until I joined the staff of the House Armed Services Committee back in 1985. And I was assigned oversight responsibility for the Star Wars program, the Strategic Defense Initiative, and also started working on programs like the MX missile and the, the B-1 bomber. And that's where I started to get intimately familiar with both the, um, the procurement of nuclear weapons and the strategy and doctrine that accompanied them. And the, the more years I spent on that, the less sense all of this made. And I began working with members who were trying to reduce uh, the number of nuclear weapons in the world and change our nuclear strategy. And I've pretty much been at it ever since. <laughs> right. And uh, looks like uh, your job's still, uh, you know, still out there. <laughs> yeah. No, no, as, as uh, I say sometimes to folks, you know, no problem scheduling this show. The problem's sticking around. They, they do. There's always a crisis. So when I joined, when I became director of the Carnegie Nonproliferation Project in, uh, in April of 1998, about a month later, India and Pakistan detonated their, their nuclear tests. The phone started ringing, and it really hasn't stopped. There often seems to be a crisis a week. Right. So you heard, you heard those uh, uh, headlines yeah, that I went through. That's a long list. <laughs> we, how long is your show? <laughs> <laughs> Half an hour. Okay. But let's, let's, let's hit as many of them as we can, and basically that's the show. First, um, North Korea. Uh, they did a launch. Uh, I believe it's a failure. Obama responds. But let's just talk about North Korea. What is the state of their program? Um, how much of a threat are they? And does it matter that their stance right now, I think usually after a failure, they return to the table soon. But this time they're, say, they're, they're going from, from failure to more aggression, well, at least in their talk. This is part of the North Korean dance. We have seen this pattern repeated over and over again, and they are constantly trying to sort of puff themselves up with, with bluster and tests in order uh, to get, get attention and to increase their negotiating position for what they, what they want. They feel that they've been ignored by the United States, that they have not gotten the security assurance or the economic aid that they were promised in, in exchange for um, pausing their program and beginning its dismantlement. The good news here is that for the last year, they have stopped making plutonium, they've stopped making the stuff of bombs, and have started dismantling their nuclear facilities. Uh, they then uh, felt that the Obama administration wasn't paying attention to them when they came in, didn't get anywhere near the attention that Iran did, for example, nothing like the kind of gestures that Obama made, and they have a small point there. They, took, they did this nuclear this, uh, missile test, which was an impressive display of technology. There's some serious missile hardware they put on display. Fortunately, the overall test failed, so I think it set, set their program back rather than advancing it. Uh, they were condemned by the United Nations just yesterday, and in response, they're doing this gesture, throwing out the inspectors, threatening to restart their plutonium production facility. 
um, I, I believe that this will end back at the negotiating table. This is all posturing and, and a bargaining position for them. It depends how adroit the Obama administration is and how concerned China is. That's our essential partner into convincing them to come back and settle these, these differences. If the past patterns stay with us, I expect we'll see North Korea back at the bargaining table within three or four weeks. Okay, I'm Terry McNally speaking with Joseph Serencioni. He's the president of Plowshares Fund and the author of Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. And you can learn more about Joe's work at Plowshares, one word, plowshares.org. Um, let's, uh, two questions on North Korea. One, I mean, the balance between getting attention from somebody and testing nuclear weapons is is a little crazy. But was there some truth to the fact that they that they were not getting the aid that had been promised in the bargain? Yes, there is, and this is, I'll do this very quickly. The last administration, the Bush administration, was plagued with a fundamental divide between pragmatists like. Secretary of State Colin Powell and later Condoleezza Rice, who wanted to make a deal with the North Koreans, and the hardliners like Vice President Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, who said, uh, we, don't, we don't negotiate with evil, we destroy it. And wh- what that meant was we proceeded with one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake. Every time talk seemed to be going someplace, the hardliners in our country would put in a new demand or put in a new sanction that would wreck the talk, that would cause the North Koreans to accuse us of going back in our word, and often that was true. So in this case, we'd gotten an agreement with them on dismantlement, and we were negotiating over the verification. How do we know we're doing what you do, what you say? They gave us verbal assurances. Uh, this is last year, mm-hmm. and the vice president insisted that it be in written form. The North Koreans balked at that, wouldn't put it in written form. Oh, God. And, and in, in retaliation, the U.S. stopped uh, supporting the delivery of fuel oil. So we're just talking about oil here, tons of oil that we were giving them. The North Koreans, in, re- in response to that, uh, stopped the dismantlement process, and things spiraled in that kind of tit-for-tat way. And how has the, the point that they that they launched a, a, a rocket? And how has the Obama weeks. administration uh, uh, responded, or how are they dealing with that piece of it? The piece that there was an exchange in place that wasn't being honored. The North Koreans are extremely difficult to deal with, but I have to say the Obama administration dropped the ball here. They transferred the, the chief negotiator, Assistant Secretary, uh, uh, the Assistant Secretary who was working on this, and, and made Chris Hill the ambassador to Iraq. But there is no new Assistant Secretary to take his place yet. We appointed a special envoy, but he's only part-time. He's not really on the job full-time yet. Um, and so these negotiations did falter. Into that space is where the North Koreans mm-hmm. saw their opportunity. And by the way, the Supreme Leader, Kim Jong-il, is actually ill, and there's something of a secession struggle going on. Whenever that happens, there tends to be a shift to the right, a sort of a hardline shift as everyone curries support of the military. So all these are the factors that are leading uh, uh, up to this. The question is, can we get back on track mm-hmm. um, before it spirals out of control? And finally, one last very specific question, which is that uh, I labeled the uh, launch a failure. Uh, what I know that I, I believe the North Koreans uh, labeled it a success, but what are you? I think you've said that there are two or three key things yeah. that they lack at this point, and then we'll finish with North Korea. Yeah, th- this was a new kind of rocket. We hadn't seen this one before, and it is impressive, and it went farther than previous rockets. But its third stage failed, 
And so the third stage with the satellite fell into the Pacific Ocean along with the second stage. So it didn't achieve its objective of putting a, a small satellite, oh, about 300 pounds into space. It, the, even if it had succeeded, however, it falls short of a true nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missile capability. To do that, they would need a bigger rocket that can carry a, a bigger payload. A nuclear weapon is typically about a ton, so 2,000 pounds. They're nowhere near that. They need one that can fly farther, not to the middle of the Pacific Ocean, but all the way across in order to be able to strike at California. They're, they're not near that. And finally, they need a reentry vehicle. It's one thing to put something up into space. It's a whole other technological challenge to bring it back down. Something So a hardened reentry vehicle with a warhead, that, a nuclear warhead that could withstand the vibrations, temperature changes, and gravitational uh, forces that will rip uh, less sturdy uh, warheads apart. So they're, they, they're, they're heading in that direction. There's still several years from that capability. Right, so there's plenty of time for negotiation. Yeah. Um, so now let's move to, uh, as I said, Obama's response to this launch was uh, actually a call for um, disarmament, uh, I think all the way to a world without nuclear weapons. Um, the right immediately, I, I know Newt Gingrich said this is fantasy policy. They immediately said this was unrealistic. I saw a, 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 an editor in the Wall Street Journal that said this is a bad idea because it, it, it gets away uh, from deterrence. Um, what is Obama uh, suggesting and what do you think the, uh, the, the, the possibilities really are? With, with two statements, uh, President Obama is fundamentally begun the process of transforming U.S. nuclear policy. The first was April 1st, where he, in a joint statement with Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, uh, said that the U.S. and Russia would, would focus on their own arsenals and would start the process of making what they call bold reductions in the nuclear force. The two of us together have about 96% of the estimated 23,000 nuclear weapons in the world. So the rest of the world looks at us the, the, the nuclear powers to take these kinds of first steps, Obama and Medvedev recognized their special obligations, special commitments, and they decided to do exactly that. They also both committed to a world without nuclear weapons. And a few days later in Prague, on April 5th, President Obama outlined his plan for how to do that. He embraced the goal, so we're no longer going to be talking about a U.S. nuclear policy that supports the indefinite maintenance of thousands of warheads. Now, he said, our policies would be geared towards their elimination, beginning with the reductions that, we, that he already mentioned and ratification of a, of a test ban treaty that the U.S. signed 10 years ago but the Senate never ratified that would ban nuclear tests everywhere, working with other countries to secure all the loose nukes and other weapons material that terrorists could steal and fashion into a bomb, working to strengthen the nonproliferation treaty to prevent countries like North Korea or Iran from getting the weapons, and about a dozen other uh, programmatic steps. The key here was his embrace of the vision of saying, this is where we're going, and that makes all the difference, because now he starts to put us all on equal footing, away from the world where some countries, the United States and Russia, for example, are allowed to have nuclear weapons while the others are, are, set, are prohibited from doing so. That is an unstable uh, dynamic. It can't and, last. And also, Joseph, a am I correct that in the non-proliferation treaty when it was first set up, 
the states possessing, primarily uh, U.S. and Russia, agreed that their side of the bargain would be to do away with nuclear weapons. The side of the bargain of those who didn't have them yet was to not pursue them, etc., etc. Yes? Exactly. And that's what Medvedev and, and Obama mentioned as their special obligations. We have to live up to our part of the bargain. As countries come to believe that we're never going to disarm, they start recalculating their possibilities. And not just rogue states, but allies like Japan, mm-hmm. who could build a nuclear weapon in two or three months if they, if they wanted to. And, and other countries start to reconsider whether they need nuclear weapons. Obama gets this, and he promised that he was going to reduce the importance of nuclear weapons in our own security strategy, understanding that as long as the most powerful military country in the world insists that it needs nuclear weapons for its security, it's much harder to convince countries like Iran that they don't. So this is actually one of the biggest uh, changes that the Obama administration has signaled, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's on par with the other kind of transformational changes he's seeking on the health care system, the energy sector, mm-hmm. the education sector. Now he's saying he's going to do it for nuclear policy as well. I've been waiting my whole life <laughs> for a president to make a speech like this. Very good. And what, um, what has been the, uh, the international response? Uh, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, there's many countries that have already embraced this, like uh, Great Britain, uh, the U.K. Prime Minister Gordon Brown, has said that he wants the, the United Kingdom to be in the forefront of the global nuclear disarmament campaign. He wants to make his country a, what he calls a disarmament laboratory, exploring ways that we could actually verify this. Mm-hmm. How do you actually, when you get down to very low numbers, make sure that nobody's cheating on it? Nobody knows yet. They're sponsoring studies, and they have their nuclear labs working on verification technology. France has, has submitted a very ambitious uh, nonproliferation and disarmament proposal on the part of the, all the, the European uh, Union. Um, we've gotten positive responses from, from China, some positive statements from India, who's now, they're now talking about ratifying the comprehensive test ban as well. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's big news. Now, let me ask you, what, a, what does one say to those who say that mutual assured destruction, the, 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 the deterrence theory, um, it goes out the window if the U.S. and Russia actually uh, disarm and, and then perhaps leaves rogue nations in a re- uniquely powerful position. What's the answer to that? Well, there's three things. One is nobody's talking about doing this overnight. It took us 64 years to get into this nuclear mess. It's going to take us a couple of decades to get out. And, and Obama actually said that as well. Yeah, so he, 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 we don't know when we're going to be able to do this. Most experts think it'll take us about 20 years and we'll proceed step by step, and every step will make us safer. Mm-hmm. The fewer weapons there are, the less chance that they'll be used or stolen by mm-hmm. terrorists, etc. So, so that's one thing. Deterrence is going to be with us for another couple of decades or so. The second thing is deterrence, you know, it's, it, it works great until it doesn't. Uh-huh. And, and then it's catastrophic, and that's the deterrence trap thinking that, that, that everyone's going to behave rationally and there aren't going to be any mistakes or miscalculations. I mean, it, it, most experts understand that we escaped a global thermonuclear war uh, during the Cold War period by luck, yeah. by luck, that there were numerous occasions we went right up to the edge and just, and just avoided it but by the slimmest of margins. And, and people who lived through that question whether we're going to be as lucky in the next 50 years as we were in the past 50 years. And, and uh, finally, and, and this is a, 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 an issue, it's not just 
U.S. and Russia that matters here. We're talking about war between other states with less command and control. Mechanism. Well, I'm thinking of, of India and Pakistan exactly. being the scariest, too. Exactly. Uh, if, 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 uh, and in the future, that could be Israel and Iran, but right now it's India and Pakistan. Uh, 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 that's exactly right. So in the South, South Asia is where most experts expect us to see a nuclear weapon used uh, for the first time since World War II in combat. Two nuclear-armed nations, each with enough material for 100 nuclear weapons. Uh, they've gone to war three times in the last 50 years. They almost went to war uh, just back in 2000, 2001, uh, when they were both nuclear-armed. Mm-hmm. Again, we just escaped that. And if, if Iran were to get nuclear weapons, it wouldn't stop there. Iran's Sunni Arab rivals right. try to rival that capability. You could be looking at a Middle East with not two nuclear powers, Israel and Iran, but three, four, or five with the underlying conflicts. That's a recipe for nuclear war. I'm Terry McNally speaking with Joseph Serencioni. He's the president of the Plowshares Fund and the author of Bomb Scare, the History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. You can learn more at Plowshares, one word, dot O-R-G. And one thing that's up there, by the way, is a chart which lists the uh, nuclear weapons of all of the nuclear-possessing countries. And I think that's interesting just to see it down to the actual numbers. How many do we have? How many does Russia have? How many does China have? How many does Israel have, etc.? And you can email me at temcnally, one word, at mac.com to learn more about the show, weekly announcements, etc. Uh, okay, so we've just were taught, we've, we've kind of dealt with North Korea, we've dealt with nonproliferation. Um, what does the new hardline government in Israel and the upcoming election in Iran, uh, what are the imp- those implications for nuclear policy? Yeah, well, with, with uh, Netanyahu assuming the prime ministership and, and with Mr. Lieberman becoming his foreign minister, you have the the most conservative uh, right-wing government in Israel's history. And um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has a very hard line both on the Palestinian question. He refuses to even talk about a two-state solution there. And on Iran, where he repeatedly talks about striking out at Iran. And just yesterday, you had Shimon Peres, uh, who's also part of this unity government, leader of the Labor Party, talk about striking at Iran, too. There's two things, or maybe three, going on there. One is that they're both, all these statements are primarily for domestic consumption. They're both trying to show that they're the stronger, they're the tougher guy. But then the Kud party is in a, in a, obviously in, in a rivalry with the Labor Party. The second is that this is aimed at the United States. They know we're now in negotiations with Iran. The United States is about to join what's, what the, the negotiations that the Europeans have had with um, with Iran over its nuclear program. We're now going to sit down as part of that process the first direct negotiations the U.S. has had with the Islamic Republic since the revolution. And they and the Israelis want to stiffen our spines. They don't want to see us making any concessions. Um, so they keep talking about strikes, strikes, strikes. Third, and here's the, the, the final thing that's going on, is that I don't believe Israel is going to strike at Iran. The Joint Chiefs uh, in our country, are dead set against this. For Israel to conduct such a strike, they would need our assistance, including overflying Iraqi airspace, which we still control. The Joint Chiefs have said uh, on several occasions that uh, strikes on Iran would would threaten the U.S. position in Iraq and Afghanistan, would start a third war in the Middle East. This is the last thing we want to see happening right now. And are we, are, uh, I know that there have been other times when Israel has uh, taken uh, action, perhaps 
you know, d- doing away with a, a, a weapons factory in Syria and, and Iraq uh, many years ago. But your, your belief is that this time the U.S. being against it and the need for U.S. Uh, involvement means that the U.S. can actually stop it. Well, there's just so much to say just about that, but let me just try. The Osirak reactor, which Israel hit in Iraq in 1981, it's widely seen. The Wall Street Journal claims this is the major proliferation success of the past four decades. It actually was a failure. We, they, they hit the Israeli reactor, put it out of business. It's no, the, the, Iraq, the, rea- the Iraqi reactor. The Iraqi reactor right. put it out of business before it could open up. They were afraid that, that he would use this to secretly make material for a bomb. It did knock out the reactor, but it drove the bomb program underground, where Saddam expanded it tenfold and started working on a secret centrifuge project that came very close to making a nuclear weapon and probably would have if it hadn't been interrupted by the 1991 Iraq War. At that time, Israel and Iran didn't, Israel and the U.S., rather, were not aware of the program, or at least the extent of the, of the program. So there's, there's a real downside to those kinds of strikes. And in, in Iran... The problem is that it's not, it, it, it wouldn't be the last move. It doesn't solve the problem. It would start another conflict in, in the region, start a war between Iran and the United States or, or Israel, and it would probably accelerate the Iranian uh, nuclear program. The debate in Iran about whether to get a bomb would be over. They'd be rushing as fast as they could to get one. And it would prove the argument that if you feel threatened right, by your best, the U.S. Best get Israel, a bomb. Let's get a bomb. Yeah. So we don't even have time to talk about what I believe you have called the most dangerous place in the world, which is Pakistan. And uh, people, uh, you know, <laughs> you know about that one, that there you have a country with, that's in, that's in uh, great turmoil and has nuclear weapons. And as we said, is uh, next door to another country in which it has uh, disagreements. And, and it has Osama bin Laden. That's right. In it. So I think Osama bin Laden is closer to a bomb than he ever has been. That's why it's so urgent to stabilize and reform Pakistan. Yeah, and, and about uh, Pakistan, it's not so much, uh, in other words, action wouldn't be about the bombs. Action would be about stabilizing the government, stabilizing the country. I, uh, that's exactly right. And again, this is why Ob- how Obama gets it right. He understands you need a global comprehensive solution. Like, you can't go around playing nuclear whack-a-mole and expect to win that game. Okay, i got to let you go. The book is Bomb Scare. The website is plowshares.org. Hello, this is Terrence McNally. Stay tuned in the second half for my 2007 conversation with the late Helen Caldicott, co-founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility, a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize, and for decades, a leading spokesperson against the use of nuclear power, whether in war or in peace. In a world torn apart by wars over oil, Many are naturally looking for alternative sources of energy, and sadly, among politicians, their leading choice seems to be nuclear. Among the myths that have been spread over the years about nuclear-powered electricity are that it does not cause global warming or pollution, uh, thus clean and green, that it is inexpensive, and that it is safe. But what are the facts? Well, we're going to look at those today with Dr. Helen Caldicott. Here on Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, and the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative, provocative approaches to business, environment, health, science, politics, media, culture, 
all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The world's leading spokesperson for the anti-nuclear movement, Dr. Helen Caldicott, is the co-founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility, a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize, and the 2003 winner of the Lannan Cultural Freedom Prize. She divides her time between Australia and Washington, D.C., where she recently established the Nuclear Policy Research Institute. She is also, uh, as I said, a co-founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Welcome, Helen Caldicott, to KPFK and Free Thank Forum. Thank you, Terry. I always like listeners to get a little feel for the people behind the ideas and the work and so on. So did you start as a, as a physician? Yeah, I did. I, so ha- <clears throat> tell me about that and how you trans, you know, transmuted into an international Morphed. advocate. <laughs> oh, well, I read a book called On the Beach when I was 15, which was turned into a film with Fred Astaire and Ava Gardner. Um, and uh, it was about a nuclear war and everyone in the world died except people in Melbourne, Australia, which was so far south, and described how eventually they were engulfed in the radiation and they died vomiting and bleeding to death. And the end of the film, you know, the beautiful streets of Melbourne were still there, a blind gently flapping in the breeze, but that was the end of life on earth. And I was 15 and I lost my virginity. By I was never the same again. And being of curious disposition, I just read everything I could find about nuclear weapons. And then when I was 17, I entered medical school, which was free for six years. And I learned about radiation and Drosophila fruit fly. There's a man called Muller who irradiated Drosophila fruit fly, who reproduce every few days. So he can watch a gene for a crooked wing induced by radiation that goes on generation to generation. And at the time, 1956, Russia and America were just going hell for leather, blowing up bombs in the atmosphere. And for the life of me, I couldn't, could not comprehend what they were doing or why, because the fallout was coming down line as Pauline said children would get leukemia and the genetic implications were obvious. And so I spoke at university, but it's a very sexist country, Australia, and my colleagues, most of them were men, I was one of the few women in my year, didn't listen to me. They continued playing their poker. So <clears throat> I didn't do anything. Then I came to to America in 66 for three years to be with my then my now ex-husband and I got a job at Harvard Medical School and I trained in cystic fibrosis but I also had three babies and I was revolutionized by living here. Um, the civil rights movement was on, Martin Luther King was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement and flower power and the whole thing was on. Um, Nixon was elected and I learnt how a working democracy operates. I devoured the New York Times every day, and I went home in 1969 to find that the French in 71 were testing bombs in the Pacific, and we, we were receiving a lot of fallout. So I wrote a letter to the paper, and they didn't, didn't print it. So I rang up the editor and said, where's my letter? And he said, well, we get hundreds a day, very condescending. And I said, yeah, but mine's important. And he published it. And the next day I was asked to speak on television, like on the, you know, the equivalent of the McNeil Lira show. And I led the movement and it was just serendipity. I was a rusty doctor and I, you know, I'd learned how to treat CF. I'd been at Harvard. Uh, And, you know, in nine months, 75% of Australians rose up and said, we won't have those bloody tests, French blowing up their bloody bombs in the Pacific because we swear a lot. 
And uh, I didn't know, but the Australians didn't like the French. They think they're arrogant. I loved the French wine, the French food, you know, the French fashions. But, you know, it was an incredible movement. And I learned what President Jefferson once said, an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. So I was radicalized, if you like, by living in America. I learned what a real democracy really means. What's interesting, actually, to someone who uh, actually was at Harvard <clears throat> at that same time, Time. Were you? Yeah, I was there from 65 what to... What were you studying? I studied social relations, which was sociology oh, really? and social psychology. Right. And I started an alternative high school and I, <clears throat> you know, was in on the building takeover in 1969 and all of that sort of thing. But it's interesting. You say that it was because you were in America that you uh, learned what a practicing democracy means. I think it's because you were here in those years. Yes. It was, it was more about the time than the place. Oh, those years were, were absolutely magical. Yeah. Um, and people had the guts to stand up and speak the truth. Where are they now? I mean, uh, I don't. I see hardly anyone with any guts at the moment. What's happened? Well, the the key thing in terms of that, uh, in terms of the anti-war movement, was there's no draft. I know. And very cleverly so. Yep. Even though it actually means it's costing our soldiers more. Oh, they don't care about that. Cannon fodder. Who cares about, you know, many of them now, they're, they're recruiting mentally retarded people. They're recruiting people with physical disabilities. And they're, I think, of those who are killed, most of them are blacks and Hispanics. So who it turns cares? Out, it turns out that statistic doesn't really, doesn't really hold. Um, what doesn't really it, hold? The, the, oh, the blacks it? and Hispanics. Oh, I'm no. wrong then. Yeah, okay. it's 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 when okay. when they break it down, it okay. ends up the, the good old South, Southern whites still go in. Yeah, you know, patriotic. The, the, and yeah, the, and that's an old tradition. Yeah. You know, it. Uh, yeah, helped. I was just in Charlottesville, no Nashville, and there was a big statue of a Confederate soldier with all the young kids that had died. You know, my next book's going to be called Why Men Kill. And I'm going to write about why society glorifies killers. Why do they glorify war when if someone murders someone, they're in jail and they may even be killed? Um, so it's an interesting concept. And why do women sit by and let the men kill? You know, what is it all about? So that'll be fun. <laughs> I'm dedicating it to Donald Rumsfeld, who's going to have his photograph in the frontispiece and underneath it's going to read... Oozing testosterone from every pore, he oiled his way across the floor. And what is that from? From My Fair Lady. Right. From George right. Bernard Shaw. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you were well known to Americans in the 80s, the nuclear sane uh, movement, the, 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 an enormous movement that I think was, was one of the movements post-60s that did bring together uh, <clears throat> right, left, women, seniors, mm -hmm. students and all, and had a, a true effect. I mean, I think well, it really we led a stopped, revolution. It stopped nuclear it parents. Was, it was the second American revolution because when I started in 78, almost every American said to me, it's better to be dead than red. And I said, well, you'd rather die in a nuclear war? Yes, they said. We don't want to be communists. Very proud. So I said, well, what about the pygmies in Africa? And they said, no, it's better that they're dead too. They don't want to be communists. I mean, it was true clinical paranoia, which we're now seeing against the Muslims. Anyway, so well, I got together all these 23,000 doctors and we started dropping bombs on San Francisco and LA and describing the medical effects and millions of people being vaporized, turned into gas, you know. And gradually people just started saying, 
Oh my God, nuclear war is bad for our health. The Catholic bishop said they didn't think Jesus would approve too much of nuclear war. You know, I was asked to speak to the National Morticians Association and I said, why do you want me to speak to you? And they said, we don't want to have to embalm radioactive bodies. And I said, well, don't worry, you'll be one yourselves. But I did speak to them. They passed a resolution and, you know, 80% of Americans in five years rose up and were opposed to nuclear weapons in the arms race. Now, that was a Gandhian, peaceful, sagacious revolution. It was a second American revolution without a skerrick of doubt, and it brought an end to the Cold War, along with Gorbachev's assistance. Exactly. You're listening to Free Forum. I'm Terry McNally, and I'm speaking with Dr. Helen Caldicott, longtime anti-nuclear activist, co-founder of... I'm not an activist. I'm a physician practicing global preventive medicine, because if I get labelled as an activist, I can be marginalised. I'm a physician. Sorry, Terry. Not sorry I interu- at all. I interrupted your spiel. You did. <laughs> you did. But there you go. Long-time anti-nuclear act advocate. Or would you rather just be a physician? Well, as you said. Physician practicing, practicing global, preventive, global medicine, preventive medicine. Trying to save the human race. And Co-founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility author of her newest book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer to Global Warming or Anything Else. And you can learn more at www.nuclearpolicy.org, O-R-G. And for audios of this and previous shows, you can go to temcnally.livedigitaloneword.com slash content slash audio, temcnally.livedigital.com slash content slash audio. So, You then, once mission accomplished, and in that case, it fairly well was in terms of changing this country's policy uh, of nuclear weapons, um, then you sort of receded, moved back to Australia, I believe at some point. What brought about this comeback? I was asked by a man called Bruce Gagnon, a former Republican Air Force man who works against putting weapons in space to go down to Florida and go to a conference on the weaponization of space. And I had no idea that America was about to deploy nuclear reactors in space and uh, laser beam weapons to take out cities and fight war from space down to earth and, quotes, affect very many kills and even put orbiting orbiting nuclear bombs up there. So I got such a shock. I thought, oh, my God, I'd better do something. So I wrote that book called The New Nuclear Danger, George Bush's Military Industrial Complex. And it was that conference that impelled me to do that. And so I was back on the track again. Yeah. So partly it had to do with one person kind of calling one you person. in. One person. But the other thing was the country had changed. In, oh, in terms absolutely of- radically. And I really um, had a ball writing about Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld. I mean, I'm being sarcastic now, but they really are sitting ducks for absolute trenchant criticism and um, it's time that we all rose up and and used the democracy and and spoke the truth. These guys are really, they're the most dangerous administration I've seen in my lifetime and I'm 68. Same here. They could blow up the planet with a, you know, press of the button and I don't think they would even care. Not only that, as they were going down, they'd tell you things were going well. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) You know that. Oh yeah, very well. Yep. Uh, Yep. Um, now, the book says nuclear power is not the answer. The reason that I assume it has that answer is that it has that title is that some people are saying it is, that uh, we, we're facing peak oil, we're facing global warming. So people are looking for alternative energy sources. So which people are saying it's the answer, Terry? 
Which people? Yeah. Ah, let me see. Think. Uh, okay. I have heard, and God, I, well, politicians. And? Um, some folks, it seems to me. Who's conducting the propaganda? Who's paying for it? I would imagine it would be the folks who tend to profit from nuclear power. The nuclear power, industry which is, is spending over $200 million in a huge propaganda exercise. Christy Todd Whitman has been roped in. God damn her. What a hypocrite. You can't say that on Pacifica. Well, why not? What's wrong with that? It's We get in trouble for oh, that. Oh, you must be joking. Really? Yeah. You can, you can blast. I can't Cri- believe it. <laughs> well, what, you, what have I done wrong? What's exactly wrong about that? It was the GD word. Are you not allowed to talk about God? Uh, you're not allowed to say those two words. You know, I will tell you something. As long as we're into this, we'll, we'll have a free <laughs> this speech is unbelievable. moment unbelievable. Well, wait. Here's the, uh, the last I'm time. I'm Australian. You can't, you know. <laughs> bingo. The last time I got in trouble sitting in that seat was anyone? Another Australian? Who? Another redhead? Anita Roddick? Oh. And she three or four times said S-H-I-T. Oh, what a terrible word. <laughs> But it was like... You guys are so wait, wait, curious. Wait, wait, wait. She said that like a, a that full. Do you know what I mean? Sort yeah. of like... Uh, and I just didn't even hear it. It sounded like a bunch, you know? And she said it two or three times. Yeah. And then and then I get off and the 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 uh, management is going, oh my God, did you... This you, is you, such a pathetic country. For, <laughs> I was nearly said for God's sake. <laughs> you, can, you can say for God's sake. It's, it's very... What can't I say? You can't say... You can, I think you can say damn, but I don't think you can say oh, the two of them together. Ridiculous. I know. So it doesn't well, epitomize America at the moment. It, I mean, it does. In other words, what you got was some righteous anger. Whoops! Stop! Stop! Righteous anger. You know. Anyway, so, what were we actually were we? talking where about? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the nuclear industry's got a huge propaganda campaign. Christy Whitman, former in the head of the EPA, is yep. being paid for by the nuclear industry. Um, and the nuclear industry lies overtly, and I'm sick of them lying. Um, and they're saying they're the answer what? to global warming. And if you read my book, have you read it, Terry? No. I've read some of it. Okay. The first chapter deals with global warming. Now I know why I like to ask the questions. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a bit experienced. Okay. So, and I'm a doctor, so, you know, oh, I can establish right. a doctor-patient that's... relationship with you, and you're nailed. That's like right. I did with Reagan. I held his hand in the White House for now and a quarter. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, while assessing his IQ. Well, let's let's actually let's go through. No, the I want to do global warming. That's for, what I'm saying. Yeah. So first, okay, first, fossil fuel immense quantities are used to dig up the uranium ore. Then immense quantities are used to crush it. Fossil fuel. Then to enrich it, you use two huge coal fire plants to enrich the uranium. For God's sake. <laughs> Then you have to build a reactor, huge amounts of fossil fuel. Then after 40 years, it has to be cut apart by remote control, by robots, more fossil fuel. Then you've got witches' cauldrons of bubbling, thermally hot, radioactive waste that lasts for half a million years, which must be kept continually cooled by circulation of water, more fossil fuel. Then you have to make casks. I love that word because you put a body in a cask. Casks with radioactive waste and transport it thousands of miles to Yucca Mountain in Nevada, transected by 32 earthquake faults. If, if they ever allow that to happen. If. But what you need to know is huge amounts of fossil fuel are used to do that. If you add up just the front end of the fuel chain, not the back, not the radioactive waste, not the decommissioning, at the moment a nuclear power plant produces 30% of the carbon dioxide as and similar side g- gas fire plant. But as uranium declines 
sorry, as uranium declines in concentration within 10 or 20 years, a nuclear power plant will produce the same amount of carbon dioxide as a fossil fuel plant, coal or gas. So you may as well just burn the coal. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I wish, no, I don't wish, they should be tried for lying. I mean, the earth is in the intensive care unit. You've seen Al Gore's film. Um, We might have 10 years before the ocean levels raise 20 feet, yet people are still driving their SUVs. And the other myth is oil is not used to generate electricity. Oil is used for transportation. So to say, oh, we've got an oil crisis, we've reached peak oil. Oh, well, you know, we'll we'll have nuclear power. The two don't even intersect. Yeah, yeah, but if you, if, if you if you're clever and you say fossil fuel, no, but it, that's lying by being clever. Lying is medically contraindicated on a planet that is dying. If I lied in medicine about treating you, I would be deregistered. Rush Limbaugh, I don't believe in freedom of speech when it comes to salvation of 30 million species on the planet. Yeah, I know. I forget, I forget who so it was. This is so serious. When someone said, you know, someone said everyone's entitled to their opinion. No, this is an opinion. No, they're not. That we must have scientific data, and the data's out there, as Al Gore so brilliantly lays out in his film, An Inconvenient Truth. My data about the medical effects of nuclear power and its expense and the cause and it causes global warming is in my book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. What is the answer? An array of renewables, the, uh, the technologies here right now, uh, they're cheaper by far than nuclear Um, We can start implementing them immediately. So every house in America is a solar collector. Every house is a solar hot water system, all subsidized by the federal government. That's what they should be spending money on, not killing people in Iraq for oil, which we've got to stop burning because we're causing global warming. I mean, the politicians are not very bright. That's half the problem. Well, it depends. They're shrewd and crafty and devious. It depends what their goal is. As to whether you think well, what is their goal? It's power, and it's power what and Henry Kissinger said, "Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac." And you know, it's very serious. We can't be represented. These people are medically contraindicated and must be removed from office for the public health of the people of the planet. Quite agree. You're listening to Free Forum. I was going to say I will finally get through one whole section correctly here. Your host. Uh, I'm Terry McNally, and I'm speaking with Dr. Helen Caldicott. She is a physician practicing preventive medicine for the global condition we face, the global condition of global warming and the global condition of environmental pollution and nuclear pollution. She's co-founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility and author of Nuclear Power is Not the Answer to Global Warming or Anything Else. And you can learn more at www.nuclearpolicyoneword.org and for audios of this and other shows go to temcnally.livedigital.com slash content slash audio now some people and I said it before and you said name them but I I know that I've been noting it in other words I'll hear and I'll go darn when I hear someone you know that should know better you saying, mean uh, you mean James Lovelock, who developed the Gaia theory? Not just Lovelock. I, I'm, I'm, you mean Patrick Moore, who worked for Greenpeace and now works with Christy Todd Whitlam, being paid by the nuclear industry? Well, not just him. Who else? <laughs> I, Stuart I, Brandt, who founded the Whole Earth Catalogue. Yes. I don't know where he's coming from, but I'll tell you what. When I spoke at my alma mater to Children's Hospital in Boston at Harvard recently, 100 of the top paediatricians in the world, there wasn't one 
person who disagreed with me. This is a medical problem. And those others clearly either are being paid by the nuclear industry, so they're prostituted, or they're fast. You know, they've sold their soul. Or or they don't understand the medical consequences of the fuel cycle. And I know because I've taught myself, because I've always been so concerned about this, you see. And so that's why I had to start Physicians for Social Responsibility to teach my colleagues. Unfortunately, it's not doing much on nuclear power at the moment, except the LA chapter is. It's a fantastic chapter. So, you know, we've got so much work to do. And the the key to a democracy is education. If, If a democracy is not educated, it makes decisions which are very serious. And our, our democracy, you, you said earlier, Thomas Jefferson said, yep. an informed democracy will govern responsibly, and that's why I think we are in such well, great danger. The As you the- know, um, at, the, uh, the, in the, at the 2004 election, after it, uh, they found that Bush supporters, over, uh, over major- a majority of Bush supporters believed that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Well, uh, a majority of Bush And who was responsible for that? Fox. And who owns Fox? Well, not just Fox. Fox, yeah, but it was big time Fox. Who owns Fox? Murdoch. Murdoch championed me in my, in the beginning of my career in Adelaide when I led the movement against the French tests. Oh. He wrote front page editorials on The Australian talking about Because he thought it was an- anti-French. I guess he did. He and then when was, I did uranium, was... he didn't, you know, right. he backed away and that's been it ever since. But Tell you what, let me ask you a few CNN's more questions. CNN's not we've good only either. Got a, we've only got a few more minutes. Let me ask you a couple of other questions. Okay. What's, the, what's the story on depleted uranium? Well, that's just uh, uranium-238, which is not fissionable and is left over from uranium mining and nuclear power. It's free. It's nuclear waste. Um, it's turned into shells of 10 pounds in mass, anti-tank shells, which are shot out at high velocity, which penetrate the other fellow's tank like a hot knife through butter. Do they, do they penetrate <coughs> Oh, yeah, they penetrate the well, tank. Well, I was going to ask, because you're someone who, who, who would know. Do they penetrate it because uh, of their nuclear no. part? Or is no, it just nothing that, to do with that. that plut- the, no, it's no. Uranium is very dense. It's 1.7 times more dense than lead. And momentum equals mass by velocity. So it's very dense, shot out at high velocity, and and being such, it goes straight through the armor of the tank. So, it's, so it's the density, not yeah, the nuclear piece exactly. of it. Exactly. Which means were it not nuclear, it would be, you know, it might make some... Yeah, but, what, but, what but what up are, to 80% of it burns, producing say, tiny, article, is, tiny particles that can be inhaled into the lung. Now... What, is the, what have been the health repercussions of I'll tell you, in 1991, America used 360 tons of this shocking stuff um, at Basra, near Basra, south of uh, Iraq. My colleagues, pediatricians, noticed an increased incidence of childhood cancer because children are very sensitive to radiation. Now it's gone up 700%. Okay? And the incidence of severe, severe congenital anomalies, babies born with no brains, single eyes, no arms, has gone up 700%. Women are are too terrified to deliver their babies. And the half-life of uranium-238 is 4.5 billion years. So America is having a nuclear war in Iraq. And this time they've used probably over 2,000 tonnes. The Pentagon is lying consistently what's new. But it's a really, really serious issue. Now, it also affects our soldiers too, right? Of course. Because they're there and they're they're all of around course. it. So they're coming back with... Well, with they, and then they excrete the uranium in their semen. Their wives complain of burning semen getting into their vaginas. And some of these fellows are having babies that are, have severe congenital anomalies too. 
Okay. Let me. What's an update on what happened uh, as as we are many years hence from Chernobyl? What is the current state of of that area? Okay. One third of the core got out during the fire and the meltdown. In the core is as much long-lived radiation as that produced by a thousand Hiroshima-sized bombs. So that's all over Europe. Right now, 40% of the European landmass is radioactive. Strontium-90, which lasts for 600 years. Cesium-137 lasts for 600 years. Plutonium lasts for half a million years. I do not buy European food. You don't know what food is radioactive, and the food concentrates these, these elements hundreds of times. I don't buy French wine, and uh, it's very, very, very serious. And we're seeing a lot of cancers, particularly in Belarus and the Ukraine. And I just read that the first uh, nuclear power plant in Europe ha- has just in this past week been slated. Someone has said they're going to build the first one in... No, they're building one in Finland. That's in the book. And it's all covered mostly by government because nuclear well, there were, power... Well, in, in the last week there was an announcement Nuclear power is a socialized industry. Oh. Yeah. Oh, and you what, need to... What? What explains all of the um, all the subsidies of nuclear power? Oh, because it's a it's a, an infant of the weapons industry, and so it's just gone on being subsidised by you, the taxpayers. Based on the notion that there were peaceful uses, and really the peaceful uses were just a PR stunt to allow us to feel a little better about the nuclear no, bomb. No, they were really to assuage the guilt of the bomb makers who felt so terrible about, you know, blowing up 200,000 people in Hiroshima and, Shima and Nagasaki. And I knew those fellows. I worked closely with them. And um, they were addicted to nuclear power in that it helped them with their guilt, but the underneath they knew how incredibly dangerous it is. And in terms of us now having, and this is going to be the last question, in terms of us now having these <clears throat> rows with North Korea, Iran, and so on, it always occurs to me that the simplest way to stop the slippery slope of can <clears throat> someone do nuclear power but not nuclear weapons is to get rid of our nuclear weapons and get rid of all nuclear power. Terence, you're right on the knocker. Of the 30,000 nuclear weapons in the world today, Russia and America own 97% of them. Yet they're running around with a microscope looking at other countries. Talk about hypocrisy. See not the moat in the other person's eye. Look instead for the moat in your own eye. This country could lead the world towards sanity and survival by, with Russia, abolishing nuclear weapons in five years. Bang. Like that. Which they agreed to do in the Nuclear Proliferation Pact. Gorbachev and Reagan almost agreed to do that in Reykjavik. And... Closing down every single reactor. You've got a special bill that's been passed by your California legislature, signed by your governor, to look at the whole life cycle of nuclear power here. You are 40 miles from a reactor, which if meltdown, melted down would destroy much of Los Angeles and kill millions of people. And it could happen tonight. Sweden got to within two minutes of a massive meltdown about five weeks ago, like Chernobyl. Wasn't in your media, was it? I didn't no, it hear was it. in the world's media. So... It's not if but when, but that that reactor at Diablo Canyon is built on an earthquake fault. My God, you are in great danger. You had better close that thing down. And people saying, well, how can I do it? You know, write a letter to the paper. You know, an aroused person is unstoppable and can absolutely change this country. And this bill might close those two reactors down. So again, the book is Nuclear Power is Not the Answer to Global Warming or Anything Else. The website is www.nuclearpolicyoneword.org. To you, my listeners, I'll be back with you again next week. Thank you, Helen Caldicott. Keep up the good work, doctor. Yeah, you do it too or else I'm going to stop.
For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcements of guests and issues, plus usually 8 to 15 links to articles to flesh out the conversation, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally at mac.com, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at M-A-C.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform Podcast on Apple Podcasts and at other podcast sites. You can find years of podcasts at my site or at most of those sites. Listen anytime, anywhere. Archives include Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer, and so on. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners. Please share this podcast widely. Hi, this is Randy Rhodes right here on the Progressive Voices Network. The Randy Rhodes Show. Smart, forward, free-thinking, entertaining, bringing you liberal news and opinion that challenges the status quo and amplifies free speech. Every weekday afternoon, 3 to 5 Eastern. Hi, it's Randy Rhodes. Listen to me on the PV live stream or on demand or both on the PV app. Just go to ProgressiveVoices.com or download the Progressive Voices app. If you want 24-7 access to everything progressive on the mobile internet, download the Progressive Voices app at ProgressiveVoices.com. The PV app is a one-stop shop that aggregates everything progressive. News, blogs, audio, video, opinion, then thoughtfully curates, prioritizes, and presents the progressive content. The purpose is to create a progressive media universe, an alternative to the one controlled by cable operators, radio station owners, and newspaper publishers. That's the PV app at ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. 911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, what insurance hassles do physical therapists and their patients face under our current healthcare system? And why are patient costs all over the place? To find out, we spoke to Ariel Wynn, a physical therapist and board-certified pelvic health clinical specialist in Chicago. You need to see your physical therapist at least once a week a lot of times. Sometimes people are even seeing them two or three times a week to get stronger, to get the care that they need, to get the mobilizations that they need. So if you're paying your 
$30 copay three times a week. That's a lot of money for a lot of people. And that out-of-pocket cost doesn't even count, have you met your deductible? Do you have coinsurance? What's your out-of-pocket maximum? And so a lot of times people are just intimidated by this really giant number. So we'll see people who we're seeing in December completely drop off in January when their deductible resets because they just can't afford it. And then there's also the more mundane issues of childcare, transportation. Do I need to take time off work with all of these multiple appointments? So even though physical therapy is conservative and effective, and a lot of times that's what people want from their healthcare team, they don't want to jump to surgery and pharmaceuticals and imaging. They want this type of care. It's just that it's really hard to access unless you're somebody who has parental leave, sick time, a, a nest egg, maybe a health savings account. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Whack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy.